Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I've got goals. Daily goals, like meditate, move my body, write. Weekly goals, like making sure I remember to water my 76 houseplants, and, well, getting this show to you. As for yearly goals, I mean, I don't know. A whole year feels like a lifetime, and there are a few things people can commit to for a lifetime, so when I start to ponder my long-term goals, they get real ambiguous real fast. I guess I can commit to being more present, being kinder to myself. Maybe I could be more generous with my time. All good things to strive for, but they're all sort of immeasurable. But the three people you're going to meet today decided that their yearly goals were going to be specific and big. One Frenchman took a year to learn English by watching hours of American and British TV shows. And you'll meet a woman who fulfilled her quota of getting a hundred rejections about things she cared about over the course of a year. And then there's Kelsey Weekman. She's a culture reporter for BuzzFeed based in New York. And in 2021, she read 12 books. But in 2022, she committed to reading 365 books. And by the time the year came to an end, she finished 390 titles. We spoke at the end of December, and I asked her to tell me how did this plan come to be? It wasn't really an idea. I just started reading, and then I was hungry to read more. Like, I just kept picking things up that I kept going. And after about I guess a month or so of reading a book every day, I thought, okay, what if I just did this for the whole year? And I didn't think that was possible either, but it just kept happening. It was a very strange situation, Uh, but it definitely, I love reading and I'm really excited that I got back into it this year, but I did not expect this to happen at all. I read 12 books last year, so I was just happy to have, you know, regained an interest in reading at all. But yeah, it, it just happened very suddenly, I guess. Was it the commitment that you had to live up to, sort of? And did you, like, speak the words aloud to yourself and your dog? Or was it to a larger community base that you had to be held accountable? How did that go? I do love accomplishing things. Like, the feeling of having finished a book is very satisfying. You get to log it on all these different apps. You get, I take a picture of it and I post it on Instagram. And so I'm like, okay, what are the colors in this book that would look good with what, you know, colors in the background I have? Like, you know, like I already started thinking about the satisfaction of having finished it. So that kind of propels me on to the next thing. And then I wrote about, I, I'm a, a writer for BuzzFeed News and I wrote about how I had done it for six months. And I was thinking, okay, well, I will, I have at least, you know, accomplished six months. That's pretty incredible. But once that was out there, I was like, okay, I, I have to finish the whole year. Well, I've written this down and now I can't fail. I'm not a quitter. Okay. So content, uh, I want to know the books that stood out in terms of 
really messing with you. Because some books are kind of predictable and that are entertaining and maybe they made you laugh. But the books that, I don't know, you were proven wrong about something. Um, well, the first one that comes to mind is that in the, especially in the online book community, everyone talks about The Secret History by Donna Tartt. It is just the, everyone's favorite book. Everyone loves it. I didn't think that I was going to like it very much because I tend to not enjoy hype. I like to read like books that are weird or books that no one has read yet. Like, you know, I, I, that is a whole other thing is that when you get books for free from publishers so that you can review them, you get them before everyone else. And then the books are free and books can be expensive. So you're like, okay, keep giving me the free stuff. And then it's, you know, you're kind of blazing your own trail in terms of what you like with the secret history sucked me in I read it like three times I my husband got me a really nice copy for Christmas that I'm going to spend some time annotating it but I just got so sucked into that world and it came out in the 90s like it's not a new book Donna Tart is not a new author but I was just shocked that I could be pulled into a world as much as I was with that book especially given how frequently I jump around from book to book because it's like it's not even just each day is a different book. Sometimes a book is three days. Sometimes yesterday I read two books in one day, you know, but I'm constantly jumping around. I don't really linger, but I just keep coming back to this book. It feels really special. It's just intriguing and it's built to make you obsessed, basically. And I thought I was stronger than that, but I am certainly not. And it's fun and I love it. If I start watching a movie and it sucks... I will turn it off. I will walk out of the theater. My time is too precious. I don't feel bad about it. Much like books, if a book isn't really, I don't know, wrapping me around its finger or getting me in some way, I'll close it. I don't want to waste my time. Uh, You were under some different circumstances where you had a goal. And so were there any books where you were like, please make it stop? If I get far enough into a book, I will just finish it and I'll just not enjoy it. And that is kind of It's unpleasant because you don't want to spend your time focused on something that you're not enjoying, especially a book. Because, you know, a book is a bit longer than a movie usually, and it requires a little bit more of your brain because you have to imagine, obviously, you know, the setting and the characters and and such. But I love to put down a book that I'm not going to finish if I don't have an audiobook or if it is a new release that I am kind of reviewing or if if I'm just not having a good time and I guess there's not a way that I can trick myself into wanting to do it because a lot of times like say there's a character that I don't like the character's a bad person well the character's probably a bad person on purpose and so I can kind of trick myself into thinking okay well this is a new experience this is a different kind of mindset I'll be fine sometimes it is too painful (laughs) and I have to put it down one of my biggest I guess hacks for reading quickly is that when a book starts to slow you down because you're not having fun you should put it down you shouldn't worry about the number of the day because the momentum that you have from enjoying reading is absolutely the secret to reading so fast and so much it is so easy for so many people to zone out while they're reading what advice if any do you have I would say I no one zones out more than me. I zone out all the time. I have just created kind of a 
you you know you think about when you think about reading you might think of like being a kid and reading in your room and under your bed with a flashlight and all that you, know, you have your area your zone I create that on my phone like I when I have my kindle app open right I have it set to infinite scroll so I don't have to turn pages so I don't have to think about how far along I am or when the chapters end I make it look like my favorite font, you can change the background color, like you can just customize everything for what sucks you in. So that helps a lot, I feel with getting distracted. Um, I also recommend I love audiobooks. I, I will talk about audiobooks all day every day. But speeding those up so that you really have to pay attention to know what's going on. Um, I know that that's a an absolute sin in audio. No. <laughs> Kelsey, you have a friend in me. I listen to a lot of books and a lot of podcasts. And for the most part, like I'll start off, I can tell by how they speak in the beginning. There are a few very slow talkers. This is one guy, Matt Kahn, and his slow talk is deliberate because of the messages he's talking about. But I, I could stand to get these messages and they get through to me er faster when I when I bump him up to 1.5. But there are some people, you, you bump them up to 1.5 and it's just too much. So you start getting a feel for the, for the speech of the author. And I don't, I think that's a tool. It and is. if you don't need to use it, you don't need to use it. But it certainly comes in handy and you also can get through more faster. Yeah, I find it really helps me pay attention. But there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of hacks I can if I'm trying really hard to get through something, let's say that's really long and that requires a lot of attention over a long period of time, I will make sure that I am, you know, listening to an audiobook and doing the laundry or I'm doing a project with my hands. And so you kind of, it's like a treat to listen and to focus in. Like the book is the distraction from life. Um, that way you can kind of trick yourself into being focused on the book. I also really recommend short books for people who are just starting to get into reading you don't have to read short books forever, but just that feeling of accomplishment and the feeling of doing something straight without being distracted is absolutely huge. Uh, another big part of uh, the online book community, especially, is doing what's called reading sprints, which is just reading for a certain amount of time period and then taking a break. And it's, you know, it's programmed that way. So you have your break coming, but you don't think about taking a break until it's break time, until the alarm goes off and it's time to do something else. So you can really do all sorts of things depending on what, right, I guess, why you're getting distracted. Like you're, if you're a person who likes to check their notifications, just do it at the set time. Um, if you would rather be reading Twitter, make your apps look like Twitter, things like that. What were the makeup of the books that you chose? You mentioned that uh, it's easier to get lost in fiction and nonfiction is, is more difficult. By the way, when you said that, I remember the book River of Doubt by Candace Millard, and it was about, I don't really care about Theodore Roosevelt. I, it's not like I grew up thinking, I want to know everything about Theodore Roosevelt. Right. <laughs> but this book, The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey, was so compelling that like I remember, it was like I felt feelings about reading that I'd never felt in my life when I was reading that book. And I felt like completely changed. And so that being said, this whole year, you've been going through all these different kinds of books. What genre, dare I ask, because I know genrefying anything is kind of lazy, but what of the genres really changed you? I actually, I have data. I'm really excited to be able to answer this with data. But I read 
80% fiction, 20% nonfiction. Most of the books that I read were either fast or medium paced, whatever medium paced means. I think it just means not slow. In terms of story flow? Or... I guess, yeah. Like it, like you go through them fast, the plot passes you quickly. Um, they have There's a breakdown of moods that I read and the, the top four that are pretty evenly split are reflective, dark, emotional, and mysterious. So... Those are all words that I would use to describe books that really hook me, right? And make me want to read faster um, and read more. But my top genres, I mean, my top genres are actually really boring because it's like literary fiction, contemporary fiction. I just said that I like things that are, you know, thrilling and, and help me get through them quickly. But I also really enjoy reading things that are just a slightly different perspective from my own. Things that are set in a, you know, a current time with a character who is not me, just anyone else's brain who is not mine. Um, And then you've got, there's some like horror and thriller also in there. I didn't realize I would like horror so much, but I really enjoyed being unsettled when it's in like a controlled environment. One of my favorite books this year was Dracula, which I didn't think that I would like as much as I did. Um, I usually, because I like a classic, but I don't read only classics, but this was a long old book but it was I had a blast it was so much fun so what's the name of that app that you enter your stuff into is it sort of like uh tapped for beer drinkers I think that's the perfect app and I think they should have something for like every single hobby that's like that the one that I'm using right now is called well you can't see it but (laughs) it's called uh storygraph and then goodreads is the more popular one it's amazon owned this one is not amazon owned so a lot of times people prefer it um, but they both help you track your goals and there's a social element so people can see what you've been reading. And, and so you post them in both, you update both. I do. The logging is part of the fun. I will say like it, the, the joy of like seeing a little goal tracker go up a little bit every time. Whew, love it. You know, you have me thinking about, I know you're married, <laughs> so this may not apply to you, but those stats and what they reveal about you would be kind of cool as a dating app. Right. Like a book-based dating app. Does that exist? Listen, I haven't heard of one. I also haven't dated in like eight years or something like that. But I, listen, I, I would also love to just like find a friend who has the same taste in books as me. A big thing. And again, the like online book community is buddy reading. So reading a book at the same time as someone and then just kind of like texting them oh my gosh I can't believe that happened and stuff like that and so like finding people with similar tastes that you can have that shared experience would be so fun but also I know it would be distracting for me because I would be like kind of reading performatively to be able (laughs) (laughs) to be able to well also you don't know if like the algorithms want to match you up with somebody who is looking for the performative book reading that you're doing so it might act, be might act against you to act performatively in the in the dating pool but you're not you're not dating so anyway we'll figure this out in my next job as a reading dating book app developer so you're gonna do this again I, i'm not sure that i'm going to make my goal 365 because there's some longer books that i want to get to and there's some projects that i want to get to outside of reading but the more that I think about it, the more I think, yes, I'm definitely going to do it. So maybe the answer is just yes. Maybe I shouldn't shouldn't worry about uh, 
how it seems if I if I fail because ultimately it's just fun. Like I'm I'm doing this for fun and not because it's something to brag about. Even though I mean I think it's a good accomplishment, especially given that I read twelve books last year, which also isn't nothing, but it is a lot less than three hundred sixty five. So it's possible. Well, Kelsey Weekman. Thank you so much for talking with me. Congratulations on your accomplishment. Thank you. This has been delightful. So thank you for making my morning so much brighter. When we get back, when you learn a whole language in a year by watching TV shows, what do you learn about what we all have in common? We would always come back to the same problem, like a heart, like someone who's got like got their heart broken, someone who got a problem at work, someone who got the problem with their kid. It's always the same thing. Plus, what it felt like to get 100 rejections over the course of a year. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. More books. I want more books. April, August, June, and May. I read a book every day. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Have you ever heard a word or a phrase from a TV show and it just got lodged in your vocabulary forever? It's going to be legend. Wait for it. And I hope you're not lactose intolerant because the second half of that word is dairy. No. Legendary. Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year. Hey. How you doing? (laughs) No soup for you. Oh my God. They killed Kenny. You bastards. I want to go to there. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Truth is, we've all learned language from the media swirling around us, and for better or worse, it's expanded our vocabulary. But what if you use television shows to learn a whole new language? Or five. Matthias Berra is French, and when he was learning English in high school in 2006, he noticed that a couple of his classmates were advancing in the language much faster than he was. So we asked him, how are they doing that? Well, turns out they learned so well by spending their free time watching hours of American and British TV shows. They'd start by using French subtitles for a couple months, and then they'd change it to English subtitles for the next few months. And then total colloquial freefall. So Matthias committed to watching at least three hours of whatever shows he wanted to every day for a year. 
After absorbing close to 800 hours of shows like Big Bang Theory, Weeds, Eureka, Scrubs, and, well, stay tuned to find out what his favorite show is, he now speaks six languages. In order of fluency, they are French, English, Japanese, Spanish, Korean, and Chinese. And he's currently learning German using the same method. I wanted to know, of all the shows he watched, which genre was the most effective? I'd say for me, it was comedy. Uh, there was a bit of a, um, like, I like, well, obviously, I like to laugh, uh, which who doesn't? Um, and so there was this. Also, I think all, I think this is less common nowadays, but many, most of the comedy, like the comedy shows were 20 minute shows. Well, now there's a few left. Obviously, you've got your South Parks and, and whatnot. But like, I still feel like the, the, so the back then that was like 2006 2007 so i was a while back and back then you had like so how much your mother scrubs the big bang theory like that, that was the beginning of all those shows and they were like easy to get in get out get in get out the topics stayed the same it's always like you know, it's a slice of uh what's, what's the what's the word slice of life uh shows and so similar topics but brought in a different light always fun so yeah you also had the opportunity to get a glimpse into humanity, at least in pop culture in the 2000s, right? Across different cultures. Yeah. So I'd like to hear what what we here in the United States or in the English-speaking world broadly have in common with other cultures that you've learned as well through the media you've taken in. Through the media, right? I'd say it was a bit of the laid-back way, like... For instance, like one of my favorite shows uh, is still that I've already mentioned was, and it still is, How I Met Your Mother. It does, it hasn't aged that well uh, in some parts, but it's still a, a good show. And what I liked is like they would sit in a like in the in the bar in the same bar and just talk about like I don't know, like they would always have problems which were like very even though back then I was still in high school, they were relatable. Americans are not the same, like don't act the same way as French people do, but yeah, everybody has the same problem in the end. And so no matter where you're from, like no matter where, like well, like how far you go, you still, and like no matter how messed up the idea behind the show is, like it was always, it would always come back to the same problem. Like a heart, like someone who's got like got their heart broken, someone who got a problem at work, someone who got the problem with their kids. It's always the same thing. Yeah, I found this to like later on in life, I found this to be true no matter where you go, no matter which language. Comforting. In a way, yeah. <laughs> right now, English and Chinese are by far the most spoken languages in the world. And I know you're not psychic, but what do you think about the evolution of language? Do you, I don't know, do you think like everybody's going to eventually speak English or Chinese or Esperanto? What do you, what do you think about the evolution of language? No matter how much we want to control a language, the language is going to evolve no matter what. Like we have in France, we have the Académie Française, which keeps on trying to regulate the French language and say, hey, those English words can't come in. Like they tried to change the word for streamer, which we use in French as streamer. They were like, no, 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 it needs to be. And then like that was like a, a long expression that nobody's ever going to use. And obviously, nobody, like everybody complained, everybody goes like, no, you, I mean, you can set it, but we don't care. Uh, language is going to evolve no matter who tries to control it. 
it can get frustrating. I, I don't get some some things of French I don't understand anymore. Like from like the younger generations, I feel old when I say this. But yeah. Me too. But yeah, I think language is attached to culture, and the way we speak, like the way I speak French, is different from the way people from south of France will speak French, or how Canadian will speak French, or Belgian will speak French. Same thing for English. It changes. I. Like I recently had a, a conversation with a um, an American so linguist who lives in Japan has been living living in Japan for a long time, and he and so it was him, a friend from India, and myself, and we were talking about the English, the evolution of English, and Chat GTP, etc., and basically AI evolution. How what's proper English? In the end, the so my uh, friend from India had has really great English, but would an AI consider his English as proper? Maybe not, because it's not the standard accent, it's not the standard construction exactly, but it's still proper English. It's just a different version of English. And so in the end, languages will evolve. I don't think we'll, we can imagine how much they will evolve, but uh, they will just old English, think old English. Would you consider old English as like a stand, like a better way to speak English? Yeah, and I think about how you mentioned how language is culture and part of culture is our media and what we're all absorbing in these TV shows, et cetera. And so there's a, I feel like there's sort of a give and take between we inform what ends up on our screens, but our screens sure as hell inform us and how we speak. Exactly. Especially now with all like, with like you, well, YouTube, TikTok, etc. Like all those have like, there's so much more media. Like before it was, in a way controlled by like, hey, what's going to be on your TV screen? There's like, that's the limit of what you can ingest like as information. Now we've got like a small, uh, like we've got even way better than a TV in our pocket at all times. And so we get way more, way more information daily. And so basically uh, the way we speak changes every day, whether we notice it or not. Sometimes I like to, like I do notice my own, I can recognize my own accent. The way I speak will change like drastically between how like if I spend more time in France, I'll like my accent will stay will switch like go more and more in a to a to a Frencher version of uh, my uh, my English accent will go to a more Frencher accent, which I think is the case right now. And then like if I spend more time in Japan, my accent goes actually way a bit more like Japanese-ish, uh, which is a, something that shouldn't be happening, obviously because. I'm not Japanese, nor am I English, so it should, yeah, it shouldn't, but happens. Although, to be fair, like when I when I visited Ireland, I absolutely developed what felt like a like a sympathetic accent. I started having that lilt, that little Irish lilt, every now and then. I certainly, I was, I think I was totally aware of it, and I didn't <laughs> want to offend anybody. I, I wasn't trying to be cool or fit in. Yeah. I just, I couldn't help but absorb it. So in a way, maybe you should have absorbed that accent. <laughs> True, true. I mean, I don't mind it. Like, I don't. I, there was a time I tried to control it. Uh, now I'm. I've kind of given up on this. I'm like, yeah. If my accent wants to go there, it will. Like this happens, especially when I speak to like people who have like a very strong British accent, and like they'll go like with like like strong. I think it's from London, like the London accent, like where they go like better or like butter, like they don't pronounce the T's. And like I take this after a while, uh, so. Well, if you were in Connecticut, you would say kitten, mitten, yeah. Really? That's the thing, like for like American accents, I don't, I I can, 
distinguish that people will not be from the same area, but I have no idea which area has which accent, apart from Texas, uh, which is... Right. <laughs> so for those who are hearing this conversation and they're like, huh, I watch a lot of TV, I could put some closed captions on, what advice do you have for them? Well, go ahead. It's not as hard as it might feel like. It's just slow. It might be slow. Obviously, not everybody has as much time as I did back then. But what's the rush? We have time, especially now with Netflix, Amazon, etc., Amazon uh, Prime, etc. It's like videos, like good TV shows everywhere and easily accessible. Uh, there, there are extensions online to you know, like to set uh, double subtitles, double language subtitles. So that can be a good like that's something I use for all my TV shows now. Uh, I always have at least one language that I'm not so fluent in as a subtitle. So just have fun and there's no rush to speak. And I think uh, now, now my accent has changed quite a bit. But when I started speaking English, um, my the very first time I said like actually speaking it, I had a very American accent. Now it's changed because I've had like some other influence. But in like at the uh, when I first started speaking English, I didn't have a French accent. I had an American accent. I don't know from where, but I had an American accent because I didn't force my mouth to make sounds that uh, weren't natural for it. I just got my ear used to it after like hundreds of hours of TV shows. And then when I spoke, it just came out naturally. So no rush. When you would be really focusing on learning a new language using this method of watching TV, was there always a moment where you were like, oh my God, I think I've got it. I never, like I had a, a bunch of smaller realization like this, like smaller, like, oh, I got that joke. I laughed at the same time as the like backtrack. So <laughs> I kind of miss them. I kind of miss like having this, uh, realization in English, at least. Obviously, I still have it in uh, in some other languages, little by little. But yeah, this is something I really enjoyed. I never had the whole like, oh, I get the entire show, and like I just got it. Like after a while, I would realize that like it's been a month that I haven't struggled to understand anything, and I'll be like, oh right, like when did that happen? So learning a language is basically it happens so slowly. Like the brain, like makes connections so slowly for this that you don't we don't really notice we're getting better at it and then all of a sudden we're good at it you make me think about how children when they're raised with many languages it's uh, like my heart longs for that alternate <laughs> life where, <Yeah. laughs> where somehow i was it. able to be exposed to as many languages as possible there's just there's no replicating that of course once our brains start to sort of harden but by doing this you're it, it is an uphill battle but it can be done yeah, it can be done. And like, I mean, it's not impossible to do the same. It's just that the, like, we are not as patient as children are. Like, they listen to the language for like thousands and thousands of hours before, like, they say the first, like, they actually make a, a sound. So, like, I, I would be happy to find a single person who, like, waited thousands of hours of not hearing any other language than just their target language. And not saying a word for like just yeah thousands of hours and then try to speak it. That would be a great experiment to see, but I'm I doubt we'll ever see it. And maybe this is for another show about another topic, but I think about if there were a way 
to put a USB in the back of our heads and upload any language we want, what that would do to languages. Uh, yeah, indeed, that's a, like I think that's a whole that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But I don't know if like I uh, I would probably do it, but I would not upload. Like, for instance, if I would if I could do it for my, to myself, I would probably do it, but not for all languages because I'd like I really like there are some languages I wish I could learn, like some languages which are like difficult to learn, like difficult to get access to resources. I would probably do it for them, uh, especially like dialects and uh, endangered languages. Uh, there's a few uh, that come to mind. I knew, I knew, especially I knew Burmese, etc. Those are languages that are difficult to to find and to learn. So I would probably do it for those. But apart from this, for like major languages, the pleasure of learning, of discovering the language, discovering the culture, yeah, it's priceless. Well, Matthias Berra, merci, arigato. Thank you. Gam sam nida, gracias, ni, and thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Kayan. It was a pleasure. After the break, one woman surpassed her goal of getting over a hundred rejections in a year, and I give her one more for old time's sake. Thank you. You compliment sandwiched me. Oh, but the, the straight up no was so funny. I'm Kayan Wolf. This is audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kayone Wolf. When was the last time you got rejected? Maybe it was a job you really wanted, or you didn't get the role in the school play, or maybe there was a very beautiful and intriguing acquaintance you asked out on a date, and they just don't see you that way. Sorry. And sometimes rejections aren't even given, right? Maybe the people at the job you really wanted never even confirmed that they got your resume, or the cast list just didn't have your name on it. Or the person you asked out, they just left your message on red. Part of why there are so many feelings behind rejection is because of the extremes. You're taking a risk by applying, by trying out, by asking for the date. And then there's that suspension of time, weeks, days, moments, where all the possibilities of how your life could splinter off into a new path just explode in your imagination, and then... No thanks. Or worse. That's a lot of feelings right there. Emily Winter, a comedy writer based in L.A., decided in 2018 to load all of those feelings into a feeling cannon, aim it directly at herself, and light the fuse over a hundred times. She asked for writing jobs in film and print. She reached out about stand-up gigs at small clubs and applied to be on stage at big comedy festivals. By the end of the year, she got 101 rejections, but she also got 39 acceptances. Like the op-ed she wrote for the New York Times about her year of magical rejections. And the first line of it goes, My dog wags her tail whenever I say no. So I asked her to tell me about her dog, Bingo. We just put Bingo down like two weeks ago and it was, we're still, we we're crying. My husband and I were like crying last night. We're still a mess. I'm so um, sorry, Emily. Oh no, it's totally fine. She would always like, if you were like, no, she would just wag her tail. And I'm sure that there is like pet psychology to this, but 
I basically what had happened was I just had just been rejected from a job at the daily show. And I had gotten so close to getting that job and I have been rejected from a million jobs before then, but to get to the interview stage and then and it's down to three people. And then for it not to go to me was like so heartbreaking. So I was just, I felt like I was at the end of my rope and I was like, what am I, I'm trying to be a comedian and trying to be a professional writer and I can't get these jobs. And I get so, I just felt like the, always the bridesmaid of that sort of situation. So I just had to like reframe and I was looking at my dog wagging her tail when I would say no. And I was like, I got to do that. Otherwise I have to quit. Otherwise I have to quit. I move back to the Midwest and open a muffin shop and that's fine too, but I can't live in this middle ground anymore. So that is where my rejection project sort of came from. Okay. So you committed to 100 rejections in a year. Where did you start? How did you launch into this? The one good thing about being a comedian is that there are so many opportunities for rejection. There's just, they're everywhere. So there are so many things that I wanted to do. There's obviously like the TV writing jobs, which are amazing. Um, I had always wanted to write for the New Yorker uh, and their shouts and murmurs. And when I was in my twenties, I was like, you know what, when I'm in my thirties, I'll be smart enough. And then I was in my thirties and I was like, I think I might just be too dumb for this. And I never tried. So that I was like, I just, I just like, didn't have the confidence. And so something like, like trying for that was huge. And then doing stand-up comedy, just like asking for better and better and better opportunities, like shows you just, you know, you can email, you can send a message on social media. Can I do your show? Can I work at your club? Can I come here for a weekend and do this? And wow, you can get rejected so quick, so many times. Um, wait, wait, wait. Were there any like ways that you were rejected that were kind of beautiful? Oh, what a good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, no. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Actually, honestly, I believe that every rejection that is a clear rejection is beautiful because getting like professionally ghosted is such a common thing now. And I, I was doing some research on it and it's like 56% of job applicants say that not hearing back anything is their most frustrating part of applying for jobs. And I totally agree with that. So like, honestly, every rejection that was like, Hey, not you, not at this time. No, thanks. is so much better than not hearing anything. And I, I understand that like, people don't have the bandwidth to respond to every single email and every single application, but I, I so appreciate when they do. Were there any uh, rejections that stood out in any way whatsoever? There was one guy in comedy and I, I can't even remember what I had asked him for. It wasn't a show. I think it was to come in. Oh, it was to come and be on my podcast that I had at the time called um, how to produce live comedy. Uh, Cause I did a lot of comedy show producing as well. But yeah, so like, I was like, come do my podcast because you know how to plan out of town shows really well. And he was like, I'm not telling anyone my secrets. And I was like, what a weird way of looking at the world. Like people still have to execute and do it. Like it's still, it's still going to be tons of hard work on their part. Like I just didn't, I just didn't understand that. And he was so mad about it. I mean, some people are just rude. It's just unnecessary when you're already being vulnerable and putting yourself out there. So I always try to, when I'm in a position, because I've been a boss before and I've run comedy shows where we have to decide who to put on the comedy show. When I'm in a position of power like that, I always try to remember what it feels like to be vulnerable because it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard even just asking for a spot on a comedy show down the street. You know, it's still, it's still 
a tough thing to do and we're all going through it. And we just all need to remember that, you know, in any creative field or any, honestly, any field, we're all putting ourselves out there and getting rejected. And it's just tough. It sounds like you're saying that the way that one rejects someone, if they even ever do, says a lot about them. Absolutely. That's such a good way of putting it. I always think when I'm trying to reject somebody with, and I, you know, they've given me a lot and I'm trying to say, that's not for me. Um, I always do compliment sandwich, which is you say something nice and then you say, but not for me. And then you say something nice again so that they can leave the interaction feeling like, hey, this is what was appreciated about my submission or whatever. Okay, it didn't work out. And most rejections aren't even about you or about the work you're putting forward. It's really about what the other person needs at that moment. And so they can leave without feeling totally destroyed because like we're all so fragile. And the more the more people I talk to about this, the more I realize like we are all so fragile. We just show it in different ways. So since the way that one goes about rejecting may say a lot about them, what do you think seeking out these rejections and the ways in which you receive them reveals about you? Well, it revealed one that I am a little bit smarter than I thought. Like I did, I ended up getting 107 rejections, but I got 43 acceptances and I, one or two of those was from the New Yorker. And my first submission to the New Yorker was accepted. And I spent like a couple of weeks, like every day going over it, changing little things before I submitted. I really, I really put everything into it and I got it. And I'm like, I might not be the smartest person in the room, but like, if I work hard, I can get there, you know? And then there's so much evidence to back this up. Like I love um, Angela Duckworth's book. She's a psychologist, her book, Grit, which is all about her studies have shown across all, not just creative fields, across all fields and with children and in the army and um, that hard work, if you put in the work, you can get what you want. You can't get everything you want all the time, but it proved to me that I, I really could do that. Yeah, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Right, exactly, exactly. And I learned how empowering it is to do something like this. And I love, and I think, I think the whole world took a couple years off of New Year's resolutions because we are all in survival mode over the last few years. And I feel like this is the perfect time to, to talk about this because we're all trying to get back into the world. Like we're all just trying now to be people again. And so it's a good time to think about what will empower you. And I think having something that you can control, like saying, I'm going to get a hundred rejection. Like I'm going to try for a hundred rejections rather than saying like, I want to get published in this publication. And if I don't, I'm a failure. You can't control that. You know, if the New Yorker had said no, I still would have gotten 42 acceptances and 108 rejections. And it's helped me learn how to proceed with other hard things. Yeah, you'd mentioned in your New York Times article about all this that you'd actually connected with the author you just mentioned, Angela Duckworth, about her book, Grit, The Power and Passion of Perseverance. And she sort of soothed you and said that you were actually practicing a sort of exposure therapy. Yeah. Yeah. She talks about it like practicing rejection and rejection is all around us. We get rejected all the time, every day in big and small ways. And to just sort of throw yourself in, you are practicing rejection so that the next time you experience rejection, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt as much. And it's, it's true. I mean, 
you know, I still definitely go through hard times for sure. But um, the professional rejection of it all is like, it stings less to my core of who I am. I think I've learned a little bit to separate. There's, there is Emily, the person, the whole complete package. And then like, there's this other layer and that's the professional and it's okay. You're going to get rejected. It's fine. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. Yeah. All this makes me think about how when you're, when we're younger and we experience rejection, it feels like regardless of what it is, there's one part that's like, you don't want to play. Oh, okay. On to the next one. Right. And there's also like another part of you that feels like you don't want to play. <laughs> what? And the older you get, the more and the more you get hurt <laughs> and experience the chaos of being a human being for a little while, you do get better at, at recognizing that the world still turns mm-hmm. when you don't get what you want and when things feel unjust. Uh, but it's been a couple of years since you published this and did this experiment. So since then, how has it changed you? I mean, I'm hardened, but like, it's hard because you I, practicing rejection makes the rejection sting less, but you still want to have like an open, this is cheesy, but you want to have like an open heart to the world. Like if you just say nothing affects me, that's not a way to live either. Like you have to like, let it happen and like have these horrible moments and these low moments. But it's so weird how we just, when we get to these like really low places, we feel so alone. And it's just like, what I've learned and just so many people telling me their own stories since I did this project. And since I published that article, people just saying, I went through this, I was depressed for six months. I thought that nobody would ever love me again, or nobody would ever hire me again. This is a universal story. And our brains trick us into thinking that it's not when we're at our lowest. And so I think having a few years behind me on this uh, project, it just really reiterates to me that we're not alone. And I had to keep reminding myself of this in a different way when my dog recently passed. Um, and I just was like, I was like, I don't think anyone can feel has ever felt as sad as I feel right now. And it's, that's absolutely not true. And then when you talk to people, you're reminded that you're not alone. And that's so, so, so important. Um, and that's why we all have to be kind to each other. Cause we're all, we all get to these places and they're not fun. <laughs> Well, that being said, would you like me to reject you <laughs> for old time's sake? Oh, please reject me. Please give me a rejection. Let's see. What would you, what can you ask that I can reject you for? Um, so how many times is the show on? It airs Saturday morning at 10, right before Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh. And then Wednesday night at 11 and then eternally on podcasts and internet. Okay. Can I have your show once a month? Oh, like be in my slot? Yeah, I'll take your slot once a month, yeah. The one right before Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Yeah, that one. That one, I'd like that. Oh, no. (laughs) But you're very nice. Thank you. I am not going to give you my slot right before Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I am so excited to see what you do in the future. Huh? Thank you. You compliment sandwiched me. (laughs) But the, the straight up no was so funny. Uh, can I tell you, I love, there is something so hilarious about just being so blood. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I subscribe to the compliment sandwich, but so I work on a Nickelodeon show. I'm writing for a Nickelodeon show right now. And the kid that's the star is, she's really funny, but she's a no nonsense. Like she's a, you know, 80 year old 
like mean grandma in a 15 year old's body. And I love her for it, but I was so sad about my dog dying. And I know her dog recently passed like, you know, five months ago or something. And I was like, Hey, her name's Lele. I was like, Hey, Lele, do you have any advice for getting over your dog when they die? And, and she was like, you'll never get over it. And it will always be terrible. And I just, like, I cracked up so hard. Cause I'm like, you know what? Sometimes what you need to hear is so blunt and painful that it's actually just hilarious. I don't believe her by the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll be fine. I think you'll be all right. Yeah. Well, did I miss anything? Is there anything that you want to add about this project that you did back in 2018, seeking out 100 rejections in a year? Well, I think one thing that people sort of misinterpret sometimes about the rejection project, because I urge like anybody to try it. And like, listen, if you're in a field where you cannot absolutely accumulate 100 rejections in a year, go for 50 or go for 25 or whatever is normal for what you're doing, you know, but, um, I've heard a couple of people since I did this complain, I tried to, you know, become a stand-up comedian and I had never done it before. And I asked Netflix for a special on Twitter a hundred times and they didn't give it to me. And I'm like, you have to put in the work too. Like you can't just, I mean, you can go around the world asking for things and sometimes people will give them to you, but like I think you you have to put in the work and the time and the practice, um, no matter what your field is. And it's not a replacement for doing the work. It's it's a way of counting the work that you're doing so that even when you have rejections, you're still winning, right? It's about like reframing the way that those losses come at you. Because actually every, for me, every loss was a win when I was counting rejections because um, it got me a little bit closer to my goal. Well, Emily Winter. Congratulations on your rejections and thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. I'm so excited. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Make it a goal to listen to Audacious once a week, at least. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or at ctpublic.org slash audacious. You can go ahead and reject me for whatever, really. I mean, just get it off your chest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, or shun me via email at audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. I am gonna make it through this year If it kills me, 